What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Actual Eye Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And today we are going to continue our learning journey with Professor John Verveke and his incredible series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. This episode is on relevance realization meets dynamical systems. We are live streaming on Twitch, Facebook, and YouTube, so you guys can join us wherever you like. And for all the, of those of you in podcast land listening on Spotify and Apple and all the other podcast places, we thank you so much for tuning in as well. You can always join us for these live streams. We'd love to have you join us. But if you'd like to listen after the fact or re-listen at your leisure on the audio side of things in podcast land, we invite you to do so as well. And thank you guys so much for supporting the stream. Make sure that you smash that like and subscribe button for uh, Actual Eye if you enjoy the show here. And also for John Verveke because of the amazing work that he's doing in the world today. Go on over to his channel on YouTube and check out... Uh, everything that's happening over there under videos and you'll see all the different playlists and uh, different projects that he is involved in beyond the awakening series so we are live in facebook land what's up facebook fam what's up twitch fam what is up youtube fam? what is up actual i fam listening on spotify and apple and stitcher and all the rest very excited for today's episode this is another really really deep one so let me go ahead and do the thing here. Doing the thing. Doing the thing. More things. He's clicking buttons and doing things. We're going places. Yes. And before we jump into this episode, we are going to, of course, uh, do a quick review of last week's episode, which was to the depths of relevance realization. Getting to the depths, that is. And DJ, if you want to help us start going through that. while I Yeah, so we started out with the... Two definitions, one uh, being aspect. So an aspect is a set of relevant features that are relevant to us um, at any given time. Um, And then working memory is your relevance filter. Um, If I'm reading the notes right, I'm sure mem, M-E-M is memory. All right. Uh, What what do we need to explain relevance and what are the mistakes um, that... Uh, I missed the the main mistake we're trying to avoid is the circular explanation. Um, you know, so we talked about, you know, the homunculus. Um, we've talked about the homunculus, which is, you know, you see something and you think you identify pillow, but you're seeing something. It goes into your into your head, which has a screen, which a little guy then sees and goes, oh, pillow. But then that little guy has a screen in his head that another little guy and a little guy. So it's a, a definition or explanation that presupposes the definition or explanation or the, the thing to be explained within it, like explaining X while well, X is the shape of X. Um, so uh, we should not, let's see the note here, sh- should not presuppose relevance. So relevance as usage, um, Computation and modularity. We talked about. Uh, we're introduced to those. I think we'll go over those further in the list. Um, we have representation. Um, so something standing for something else, um, like an object in this world, like using a stand-in representation. Something, or 
no, a representation. So something that is aspectual. Um, you know, the globe has aspects of the planet. The most important aspects of the globe are the shape of the continents on the globe being accurate and proper um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. scaled distances and stuff. So that, you know, they're not the same thing, but it has aspects. So it is right. a, it's, is a representation to stand in. Um, so we're trying to understand relevant realization, this yeah. process that occurs in our, in our brains that can, that is contributive to consciousness and also seems to rely on consciousness to, to work at all. And we can't understand it by its aspects, because they themselves contain, sometimes don't even contain an essence that makes them similar to one another. But we do know that relevance realization allows us to feel a deeply connect, deeply connected to sense of meaning, of purposeness, of connectedness. Uh, that's what the term relevance denotes, deep connectedness, agency and meaning. And so we're exploring right now, in the previous episode, we were exploring what kinds of mistakes to avoid when we are exploring relevance. We want to avoid circular arguments. Yep. Right. Whatever we use to explain relevance can't itself use relevance. It can't presuppose, like DJ was saying, relevance in the machinery that's used to explain it. We must find the processes that are causing it, such as you can't explain intelligence without processes themselves that are intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a, it's a very difficult thing to pull off. So we tried to explain in the previous episode uh how the relevance realization process works perhaps through representation and we find that 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 actually doesn't work that we tried through computation it doesn't work because you can't uh with representation you're only exhibiting a small uh subset of relevant to you things Mm -hmm. yes yes you were saying that that, representations are aspectual yeah so like say in the globe circumstance you know it's like well that's it's a fine enough stand-in to just you know, look and be like, this is here and this is here, but it's not. If you want to learn about the planet and everything about the planet, your globe's not going to work, right? That's true. So yeah. our our stand-ins are good for certain things, but not necessarily good for other things because mm-hmm. they're not literally the thing. Yes, and, and then they put this as the map is not the territory, the mm-hmm. menu is not the food. Yes. You know, the description of something is not the thing itself. And your aspects will change depending on how you can use it. So, mm-hmm. you know, like say what aspects become more salient change depending on how you use it. Like say if you're, uh, I don't know, using a globe as a basketball. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's yeah. a really crappy basketball, but, you know, um, or I'm trying to think of a better, um, like a multi-use thing that many people use many different ways, but they're, it's useful to each of us in different ways. Oh, 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 like a tree. Things can live in a tree. Trees can be pretty to be put in your yard. Bears will scratch their backs on trees. Sometimes you may too if you got an itchy back and you can't get it. Um, You can climb trees. You can hang a swing from trees. But, you know... There's a spider web right here. Yeah, there's lots of spiders everywhere. Um, But, you know, what the... What the squirrel and the bird is thinking about tree is not necessarily the same thing as like, oh, look at that tree. I could turn that into a bunch of boards. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, it changes. It you know, does. Yeah. It's, 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 seeing, looking at it. it's seeing secure platform, secure, safe platform to put my home. And I'm thinking, yeah, I could probably get so many, you know, foot or board feet out of this tree. Yeah. Which is a yeah. The features don't exist alone. Like mm. it's it's attached to how they're meaningful to us. They're, we're in a reciprocal relation with things. Um, mm. 
uh, know, sexuality deeply presupposes our ability to do relevance realization. Mm-hmm. Representations are not the cause of relevance. They are not the basis, however, the source, the locus of how we do relevance realization. Um, they feed back, but they are not the source of it. Mm-hmm. And so we notice that the brain has this capacity to track the here and nowness of something yeah so that's uh multiple uh multiple object tracking Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and and this is also known as finsting fingers of instantiation it's mm -hmm. the mind's capacity to put a metaphorical finger on something to put its attention on something and to keep in touch so it only tracks the here and nowness of something and we realize this um Uh oh we've proven this through various experiments like the eight object tracking experiment yeah, so the more the more objects you're tracking, the less uh, you know features you can identify. The, the less, less aspects, the less aspects that, of yeah. them you can identify. That's right. Um, so yeah. if you say you have like a red uh, X, a green circle, a blue square, um, you have you know all these different shapes and letters, and they're different colors, mm-hmm. and they're moving around, and you're trying to track them, you're going to after the experiment if you do a good job of tracking because you can on the average we can track about eight objects at once reliably but the more that we track the less features we can keep track of so we might be able to keep track of the x the o the y the u the square the triangle but But if someone asks what color it was what color was that circle you're most likely not going to be able to remember because you're tracking more so the here and nowness so we're, we're really trying to narrow in into what is relevance? Salience tagging. We is, notice is there's the salience the, yeah. tagging process we do. This capacity to touch on something to make it more salient or apparent to our consciousness. Yeah, yeah so we have an active demonstrative reference then. And the words this, here, now. Yes. Are all demonstrating this, this thing is here in my hand right now. Yes, that's the know. salience tagging of hereness and nowness yeah. of something. We need that an active demonstrative reference before we can even categorize and mentally group things together. And we bide things together through salience tagging. So if you see a bunch of dry erase markers, was the example for Vicky was using, spread yeah. out on a table, say, you, you can tell these are all dry erase markers from the design of them and the writing on them. And so you can group them together quite reliably, quite, quite easily. And now all our concepts are categorical as well. And... Yeah, that's why we need the ability to salience tag because it allows us to say, okay, this thing right here right now does this or is this within its relationship to everything else? That's right, yeah. Uh, so to be able to put it into a category, yes. like particularly when you're managing time, you know, okay, well, this thing right here right now needs to be there then. Yeah, so salience and, tagging is actually pre-categorical mm-hmm. and it's pre-conceptual. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to confuse the properties of of theory with the concepts used to describe it. Verveke continually reiterates this because we can so easily fall into the trap of circular explanation. So he uh, he makes that warning again, and then he says, the, compa- the capacity for the mind being in contact with the world. We have the represa- representational level versus the semantic level, and we have to go sub-semantical, sub-representational, sub-conceptual to get at relevance. We do notice that transcendent states, higher states of consciousness, uh, whether they come through long meditative practice or plant medicines or near-death experience, they reliably 
are reliably non-conceptual in people's explanation of them. We are often using the language that is using the words of here and nowness and oneness, like that. Mm. So we have so, found a semantic level of representation. The syntactic level doesn't quite work to explain relevance. You can't get to the bottom no, of it. That, that would all be, you, you get lost in circular. That thinking. would be the um, semantic. So the syntactual would be yes. uh, Fodor's realm, whereas to think is to do how things fit together. Computation. So um, yeah. So on the computational, because in semantics we're dealing with relations. Yeah. Cognition is computation, like Hobbes said. To think is to do computation. That that was their thinking. Capacity for self-criticism, the cognitive science, that doesn't... Uh, that thought semantics work, recognize it doesn't work, and that was Fichtenstein, I believe. I might have skipped a name there somewhere. But uh, the, So the syntactual end of things is mm -hmm. making a distinction between... Um, or no, Fodor critiques, you have to... Um, his critique is you have to make a... In a distinction between implication, which is a conclusion, and inference. Mm -hmm. what, That's right. Yeah. Um, and in order to change your belief. So, like, what belief should I be changing? That was, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, instead of working within a belief, it's working out which ones should be changing. Which to belief be more, should I be changing? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and propositions are divine, defined by implication relations. So it's logical relations to other propositions, to all that imp that it implies. We realize that we realize through other propositions. So propositions basically require other propositions to even work. Um, so Cherniak basically said this is combinatorially explosive. You can't be comprehensively logical, and that's what we're getting at here. Yeah, We decide which thing we select, and then we'll use an inference. So the cognitive commitment, which are we going to commit to, really matters because we can't afford to use or put our attention on everything. There's not enough bandwidth. Just what we need to change in this context. So what makes us rational is our capacity, our ability to select the relevant things that are things that are relevant to the context of the situation. And according to your pre-existing heuristics as well. Mm -hmm. so, and we use our working memory here. So brought into our working memory are all those things that are most salient and seemingly relevant to us, dependent, depending on the task that we're engaged in. We we're talking about the fire last, last episode and what does combustible material, um, a pet, a picture of the family, and you know, a birth certificate have in common. Mm -hmm. And it's there's a fire in the yeah. house. All of these things are super salient to me right now. They're in the forefront of my consciousness. It's a strange thing. Uh, these are strange things to typically group together, except for in the context of a fire. So the relevance is always changing mm -hmm. too. What is relevant to our minds? It's not something static. And so we create rules. Mm -hmm. Um, and every rule requires specification, uh, specification in its realization. So like, um, the rule be kind, um, yeah. well, what kind of kind, like the same ki being kind to a friend, to a level, to your, uh, to a lover, to your child, to your stranger, <laughs> right. these are all different kind relationships, uh, or different types of different kinds of being kind, if you will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and rules themselves are propositions so that you, tell us where to commit our resources. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you have to be specific with your roles too. Cause you know, like, really? uh, what, what is that? Uh, yeah, which implications and beliefs should I hold relevant? So we have to utilize selective judgment mm-hmm. because we can't use our propositional or computational, uh, capacity to determine what's appropriate. We notice how pro- the propositional depends on the procedural, um, that we the process procedural process we're engaged in. Uh, even if lions could talk, for instance, we would not understand them. No. Their form of life, what is relevant to them, is so different to our form of life. So that procedural depends on situational awareness, perspectival knowing. The ability to do salient landscaping, which is our capacity to make things more apparent to us in our consciousness based off of what's important to us. Foregrounding or backgrounding, depending on the relevancy to us. Procedural knowing depends on our perspective, perspectival knowing. And perspectival depends on how well the agent and the arena are matched. Mm -hmm. So this is a lot of terminology that we went through in previous episodes and earlier episodes. And if you look through those episodes, you can find them if you wish to rewatch them. And, you know, the say like the rule of be kind has so much more said Mm -hmm. within it. Like what we talked about an episode or two ago about whenever you, you know, say something like, you know, the excuse me, I'm out of gas thing. They're like, just the word excuse me has so many things that are unsaid. So Mm -hmm. be kind these rules that we create for ourselves. So what do you call them? Um, maxims. Maxims. Um, they're imperfect as well because you can't be, you can't be completely specific or else you're just talking and talking and talking and talking on and then forget it. So what do you create a higher rule that encompasses them? No, you can't really do that. Uh, because your, you know, your rule is just a proposition anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and we learned about, you know, you know, um, the idea of, uh, you know, just having a proposition or, you know, like believing in something that's just a proposition or just told to you, be kind. Just proposing that I be kind. Like that. Okay. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Why to what, how, which kind of kind. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and so the procedural knowing depends on the perspectival. Yeah, and the skill of, of your judgment of the procedure. I think that was Brown. I'm, I'm butchering it, but uh, butchering what he was Le- leads to how well we can participate, though. And the so computational is not enough. It seems like you know all of these, all these techniques or strategies or avenues that we naturally go down without realizing are not enough on its own to Mm -hmm. explain where the relevance realization comes from right because you know it's like as you look at it you're just looking at something that's already started its spiral and you can't find the start of where it starts so yeah we keep going um yeah relevance realization has to work in an integrated fashion on multiple levels of cognition in a self-organizing fashion it requires an auto poetic engine which means it requires a self-aware engine like what we're trying to invent in ai before we go into that perhaps on the cusp on before we go into that real quick because you cut you you brought this up earlier um so situational awareness Mm -hmm. is uh something that's going to be important and it's the 
perspectival knowing of mm-hmm. the landscape, uh, the salience landscape. Yes, yes. And then there's the procedural knowing, which then goes into the so procedural into perspectival, into the agent arena, into um, participatory, and that is the arrow of difference. If I got this right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I believe so. Yeah. We recognize it's an it's an asymmetric. Yeah. An asymmetric dependence as well. Yeah. So, um, but there is a direction, mm-hmm. if you will, like one thing leads into another, leads into another, leads into another, feeds back somehow back into the other, right. back into the other. Yeah. Um, so it's not just all these different forms all, of knowing of awareness that we have: the propositional, the perspectival, the procedural, the participatory, all feed into one another and they they do inform each other Mm. and so so after and so this was us checking out computational okay is there something a computational process within the brain that is allowing for us to recognize what's relevant and we find well no that doesn't quite get us there either so okay now we're going to look for modularity is there a module is there a part of the brain that's specifically dedicated to relevance realization the central executive and a lot of psychologists would quickly point to the central executive because it seems to feed into our capacity for relevance realization. But that gets us into the danger of the circular homuncular fallacy. That, and that's why uh, Verveke did state that relevance realization requires, has to work in an integrated fashion on multiple levels of cognition in self-organizing fashion, in an autopoetic fashion. It seems to... So it, it couldn't be happening just in the central ex- executive. That is impossible because it's yeah. happening on so many parts of the brain at once. Yeah. Um, so the attention knows how to move from detail to gest- gest- uh, gestalt or gestalt, or and that you know from gestalt to detail, mm-hmm. meaning our attention has this capacity to zoom in and zoom out so, as needed. Yeah, I guess relevance really the the. The moment of relevance realization exists in the non-dual state. So it's not mm, going mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. transparency into opacity, which would be going into the meditative state, you know, moving inward. And it's also not just going from opacity into transparency, yeah, yeah. the moving it's up and outward. Doing both at once. Somehow. Somehow. Like Somehow. a Taurus. Even though every, every way we look at it, there's some type yeah. of asymmetrical chi- chirality to it. Right. Um, and by chirality, I mean like, you know, turning. But yeah, um, that's, that's what turning. the yin yang is is trying to show us. Yeah, and you can almost imagine that in three D mm-hmm. and, and get an idea of what's happening. But it would have to be animated for us to be able to visualize. So uh, he made a our st- explanation has to work in a way that explains how the brain recognizes goal, recognizes goals. Goals are we we recognize must be internal to relevance realization process because goals are constitutive. They're mm-hmm. auto poetically poetic they're internal they promote self-organization living beings have goals self-conscious self-aware beings have goals and, and not so just to you, promote but to also protect yes is, is that's there. right there you go that's um, right so there's a deep connection between real relevance realization and being a living being what's the local global <laughs> i'm trying to figure yeah, out my notes on that now uh i'm Future and gestalt, self-organizing yeah. to be capable of self-reflection and yeah. organization. Well, we have a problem in an issue, slash an issue. Um, we cannot have a scientific theory of relevance itself. Yeah. I mean, we're trying to figure out, okay, so what is relevance itself yeah. then? Yeah. How does our brain know what's relevant? And we, we can't even do that. 
yeah. we can d- develop a theory of relevance realization in how the human brain utilizes it. We just don't know how it's happening or what's causing it. We, we yeah. have a feeling that, con- that consciousness is central to it. Somehow consciousness allows us to do this, but we can't find the place in the brain that it's happening. But that, you know, that's... Or even the process. Uh, th- that's, uh, you know, almost helpful in a way because it, fur- it it pushes us further into our understanding. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, doesn't um, it preclude us from understanding what real relevance realization is, even if we can't explicitly describe its its very mechanical source? You could say in the brain. Yeah, that's, yeah. I think that's, that's, that's what I, I got. That's oh, boy. Yeah, that's it. That's an empty. Page. Yeah, that one had that episode had a lot. Now I was just struggling to keep up with my notes. Ah, writing is chicken scratch. That was a somewhat challenging episode, and. I would have been totally lost if I hadn't watched the previous. So it's, you know, and thank you again, brother, for sharing on this journey with me because I'm retaining so much more of this well, you, series now. You this kept is... bugging me for, what, like almost a year before we did You're just like, yo, we got to do this thing, man. Well, I remember when I got into the 30s where it started to get tricky and I realized, okay, I got to restart the series. So I had restarted it a few mm-hmm. times and... Uh, getting to watch it with somebody else take notes and then have to figure out how to sum it up in each preceding episode that we're doing here is really helping lock it in so i i hope that what we're providing here is something of a service to all of you you can help think through this together with us we make a lot of mistakes i know i myself oh, yeah. have totally misunderstood a lot of things and then only later on in the next episode I mean, realized it and then been like oh well i said that well we're not the professors episode. in this we're merely the students we are the sitting students. in the back of the class taking notes giggling to That's ourselves it. this so, is like a study you know. group you guys get to join us it's a watch along and we're actually yeah we're, we're learning this is but this is not quite pure education boring sit in the class academic this is edutainment and this is empowerment and it's a lot of things. At least I hope that we're adding some kind of edutainment aspect to it. So it's a little bit more entertaining for you guys and not totally dry. Um, I don't find Verbeke dry. I find him fascinating, but I know that it's a lot of dense knowledge, it's a lot of yeah. dense information that he's putting out. Oh, he's so definitely not dry. He's, you know, he he's animated. He doesn't talk like this and just goes on and oh, on. He gets pretty emotional. He to... bangs on his desk sometimes and he throws it, stuff. It's poor sound guy. <laughs> yeah, know, he like, raises his voice before, a lot. Where he's just talking like this, but then he'd be like, but then the slam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he puts emphasis on something. It's <laughs> it's big. It's serious. You know what's happening. I'm still waiting for the Verveke memes. We should start making uh, Verveke memes. We really should, man. I don't see no one else doing it out there. we got to do it. Someone's got to do it. If anyone out there in YouTube land or wherever else would like to help us with some Verveke memes. Oh, you know, it'd be a good one. So for the people listening, I'm sorry, you can't directly see it, but I'll explain it afterwards. Verveke holding his hand like this, you know, Mm -hmm. where he does, does where he feels like he's pulling a thought out of his head. Yeah, he's literally trying to pull something out of his brain. You write underneath of it when you're, you know... uh, when you're mid-speech and you feel a hair on your forehead, you know, and you're try, you know, trying to get the... So you're like pinching your forehead, trying to get the hair off your forehead, but you just can't, and it's just him trying real hard to you know, pull this thing. <laughs> that would be a good Verveke meme. You know? That's a funny meme. That's yeah, a funny when meme. you're mid-lecture and you you know, got to... I tried to thought about how we could put some of his greatest points into memes, but they require a lot of words sometimes. And, and that's so not meme. That's not meme worthy. If your memes have more than like a sentence per box, yeah, yeah, no, you're doing but it wrong. <laughs> tweet worthy. A lot of his things are. You yeah, know, yeah. one of his greatest probably would be meme worthy. Would be when he said, "Love 
is mutually accelerated disclosure. I can share with you. We made a clip of that one. I made a mm-hmm. short out of that. Um, that was an amazing episode, and and I love that statement. It's true. It's mutually accelerated disclosure. It's like an o- constant opening up to something or somebody else that you love that you're engaged with in a mutually accelerated fashion. Maybe that's why people find it so scary. Oh, for sure, man. It's like jumping off of a cliff kind of experience. And you don't know what's going to happen. And it's a very bittersweet thing because as soon as you feel the beauty of it, you feel the potential for loss at the same time. And it's getting that's faster. That's the way all beauty is. And faster and faster and faster <laughs> and faster and faster. Oh, dude. Life today in general is doing that, isn't it? Yep. Well, guys, I hope you all are ready. We're about to jump in. This is episode 30 of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis with Professor John Verveke. This episode is on relevance realization meets dynamical systems theory. This is a deep episode. Get ready. Here we go. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. This is episode 30. So last time we decided to dig into this central issue of realizing what's relevant. <clears throat> and we're following a methodological principle of not using or presupposing uh, relevance, uh, a capacity to realize relevance in any process, purported cognitive process or brain process that we're going to use to try and explain uh, that ability. I gave you a series of arguments um, that we can't use representations to explain relevance uh, because representations crucially presuppose it. And then we took a look at some very interesting empirical evidence that really comports very well with that, the, ish, uh, the evidence surrounding uh, finsting and your ability to, uh, do, to do inactive demonstrative reference, salience, tagging, just making stand out the here-ness and the now-ness of something. We then took a look at um, the, and we, we, we drew a, a few conclusions about the meaning that we're talking about in meaning in life, right? that connectedness, that connectedness is uh, ultimately not generated by uh, representations. Again, I'm going to keep saying this. I'm not denying that representations and belief in that level can't alter or transform what we find relevant. We're talking about the explanation of the phenomena, not how it is causally affected by other aspects of cognition. <clears throat> we then took a look at a syntactic level, the computational level, and saw arguments that neither inference nor rules can be used to explain uh, the generation of relevance precisely because they also presuppose it. We looked at uh, trying to deal with relevance in terms of some sort of internal module dedicated to it, and that won't work. Uh, It's homuncular, and relevance realization needs to be (coughs) scale invariant, or at least multiscalular. It has to be happening simultaneously uh, in a local and global way, and that again points towards something else we noted about any theory, it has to account for the self-organization of uh, relevance that is demonstrated in the phenomena of insight. So we then saw that a, a theory has to use 
um, explanatory ideas um, that point to processes that are at least in, in the originary sense internal to the relevance realization, the relevance realizing system. And I tried to get clear about how not to misunderstand that. What I meant was the goals of the, the goals that govern relevance realization initially have to be constitutive goals. They cannot be goals built upon representing the environment in a particular way. Instead, they have to be the constitutive goals uh, that are part of an autopoetic system, a system that is self-organized because it has the goal of preserving and protecting and promoting its own self-organization. That draws deep connections between relevance realization and life and relevance realization and being an autopoetic thing. And of course, as I've already mentioned, right, relevance realization processes have to be multiscalar, they have to be self-organizing, they have to be capable of developmental self-transcendence, uh, self-correction, insight, etc. We noted along the way, right, about how this links up with an argument about how the propositional depends on the procedural, which then depends on the perspectival, which then depends, is grounded in the participatory. But we hit a roadblock, one I want to now zero in on. I had been treating them as identical, but I'm going to then make a very important theoretical distinction between a theory of relevance and a theory of relevance realization. Because what I want to argue is that there cannot be a theory of relevance, at least a scientific theory of relevance. And since we're playing in the arena of science, scientific explanations, I'm not going to keep doing that qualification. I'm just going to say there cannot be a theory of relevance, scientific theory of relevance. Why not? Well, this has to do with uh, an issue that was originally brought up uh, by Chappie and Kukla um, in an article, A Commentary on Behavioral Brain Sciences. Um, Dan Chappie and I have published work together. Uh, we're collaborating right now on a work on uh, telepresence. Um, I recommend you to take a look at the work of Dan Chiappi. Uh, but they made a point, and I think this point is, is, is very well taken. It's a point that goes back to J.S. Mill. Uh, but you can also see an updated version of it in the work of the important philosopher and philosopher of science, uh, uh, Wilfred uh, Quine. So this has to do with how science works. Now, of course, the philosophy of science tackles all kinds of controversial claims about what is science and how science works. But I take it that one thing that is agreed upon in science is that science works through inductive generalization. Or um, it tries to generate inductive generalizations. What do I mean by that? Science, you study a bunch of things here, and then you make predictions and claims that that will be the case for all of that type of thing. So, you know, here I study a, a, a bunch of, you know, here's a hunk of gold, here's a hunk of gold, here's a hunk of gold. I come up with a, right, a set of features or properties. Does that generalize to all the instances of gold? And if it does, then I come up with an inductive generalization. I want to get the broadest possible uh, inductive generalizations that I can. 
because that's how science works. It's trying to give us a powerful way of reliably predicting the world. It's doing other things, very importantly. It's also trying to give us a way of explaining the world. I'm not claiming this is, I've tried to make it clear, this is not meant to be an exhaustive account of science. It's meant to point to a central practice within science, but a constitutive practice nevertheless. If you can't generate inductive generalizations in your purported endeavor, then you don't have a science. This is why pseudosciences like astrology fail, precisely because they cannot do inductive generalizations. Okay. You say, okay, great. So what J.S. Mill pointed out is that means that we need what's called systematic import. And this is so relevant to what we were talking about last time. In fact, even using the word import is, is really uh, relevant. What that means is science has to form categories, because that's what I'm trying to do, right? I'm gathering a bunch of things and saying they belong they're the same type of thing. They're all instances of gold. They all belong to the category of gold. Science has to form categories that support powerful, meaning as broad as possible, inductive generalizations. To be able to do that is to have systematic import. Now, what, does, what do I need? Think about reverse engineering this. In order to have reliable, you know, that's what powerful means, reliable and broad inductive generalizations, in order to have those, what do I need to be the case here? Well, I need, I need there to be important properties for the, that category. One thing is I need the categories to be, the category members to importantly be homogeneous. There's a sense in which all the members of the category have to share properties. That's, that's me indicating they're all sharing properties, right? And it's because they share properties that I can make the inductive generalization that other instances will also have those important properties. That's exactly what I need. Because if the members are heterogeneous, there's no set of properties I can then extend in the generalization. They have to be homogeneous. Now this gets us towards something very important. Right? This gets us towards a, an idea from Quine, because there's a lot of discussion about this word right now in the culture. And I think the discussion sort of is too polarized. And this has to go, again, with an issue made by Wittgenstein, but I want to put Wittgenstein and Quine together on this. Very important uh, modern philosopher. Because Wittgenstein, and this is what some of the critics of essence say, right? Because if you remember, according to Aristotle, and we talked about this when we talked about Aristotle, an essence is a set of necessary and sufficient conditions. And what Wittgenstein pointed out, and remember we did this with the example of a game, that many of, many of our categories don't have essences. 
There is no set of necessary and sufficient conditions that will pick out all and only games. There's no set of necessary and sufficient conditions that will pick out all and only tables. So many of our categories don't have essences. That was Wittgenstein's point. Now Wittgenstein, I, I don't think you could ever pin him to the claim that no categories have essences. And that's what some people, I think, have concluded, that no categories have essences. Everything is just nominal description. But that's not right. right? Because, of course, non-controversially, for example, triangles have essences. That's why Aristotle thought many things did. Right? You know, if it has three straight sides, right, three angles, it's enclosed, it's a triangle. Those, that's an essence to a triangle. Now, that's mathematical. Here's what Quine argued. At least I think this is an interpretation of Quine that is uh, philosophically defensible. Science, these are the things like triangle, these are deductive essences. These are the essences that we can deduce. But what science discovers are inductive generalizations, and if they're powerful enough, science gives us the essence of something. The essence of gold is the set of properties that will apply to all instances of gold. All and only instances of gold. That hom homogeneous set that can generalize is what an inductive essence is. Now, what that means is we shouldn't, a couple of ways of talking in the media shouldn't, or the general culture should, should not be so uncritically accepted. Right? Essentialism isn't bad for things that have essences. Why would it be? Essentialism is the, is the mistake of treating a category as, as, as if it has an essence. It is a mistake for things like games and tables, precisely because they don't have an essence. It is not a mistake for things like gold, because gold has an essence, inductively, or triangle, because triangles have a deductive essence. The it, it is too simplistic to say everything has an essence or everything doesn't have an essence. Now, now it cuts both ways. It cuts both ways. Right? There are many things that don't have essences. That's what's right about the critique of essentialism. But it is wrong to conclude that there is not, it's wrong to say that Wittgenstein argument points, it is not an argument, because it's not a deductive argument that concludes that there are no essences. It only points that many categories don't have essences. So that means it is possible to do a science when we do what? When we categorize things in such a way that we get this. Because if we get this, then we have the essential properties of the thing. Now, the reverse is the case. That's what I mean by it cuts both ways. We can't have a scientific explanation of everything. We can't have a scientific explanation of everything. If the category is not homogeneous, if it does not support powerful inductive generalizations, if it does not have an inductive essence, we cannot have a science about it. It doesn't mean those things don't exist. It means we cannot scientifically investigate them. So for example, 
I can't have a science of white things. Now, are there things that are white? Of course there are. This blackboard is white. This pen, at least part of it, is white. This part, right, this piece of paper is white. To say there are white things in this room is to say something true. Notice that. There are truths that are statable, but the category I am using, this is J.S. Mill's example, white things does not support any inductive generalizations other than the thing is white. Now, don't give me, well, we can have a theory about light and whiteness. We're not talking about a theory about light. We're talking about a theory about white things. Knowing that this is white, what does it tell me? Uh, right, so I study this white thing. Okay. What do I learn about it other than, oh, nothing, other than it's white? Is there any other important share? No, well, no. Ah, well, they're both flat, but this is vertical, this is horizontal. You see, it doesn't generalize. It doesn't generalize. So, it is correct to say that there are many categories that we form for which we cannot generate a scientific theory or explanation precisely because those categories are not homogeneous. They don't have an essence. Now, notice what that doesn't mean. The fact that I can't have a scientific theory of it does not mean that white things are made out of ghosts or dead elves or ectoplasmic goo. It licenses no metaphysical weirdness. It just says that category functions in the sense that I can make true statements about its membership, but it does not function insofar as it supports, right, through systematic import, powerful inductive generalizations. What else do I need? Well, let's compare, right, the white things, as J.S. Mill did, to horses. You see, and we depend on the fact that horses seem to have an essence. Now, whether or not they ultimately uh, right, do at some sort of species level, something you know, really argued about um, in biology, and I'm, I'm not trying to be uh, negligent of that, but I'm also not going to try and resolve that. What did Mill mean by his example of a horse? Well, what he meant by, if I learn a lot about this horse, right, it will generalize to other horses. It will generalize. So horses are in really important ways homogeneous. That's why we can have veterinary medicine and things like that. I can learn about it in, in terms of horses that have already been studied, and it will generalize well to horses that have not themselves yet been studied. That's fine. What else? And this is a <laughs> I don't mean this to be a pun. I need the category membership to be stable. That doesn't mean to be horses and, and stables, right? What's, like, what's in the category, the kind of things that are in the category should be stable. It shouldn't be constantly shifting or changing. Because if this, and this was a point made a long time ago by Plato, if what's in here is constantly shifting. Now, I don't mean the particular members. I mean what kind of thing is in here is constantly shifting, right? then, of course, I can't do inductive generalizations because I will get into equivocation. I will get into equivocation. 
right? So the word gravity originally meant uh, having to do with you know, drawing down into the grave, as we mentioned. It had to do with sort of an important seriousness. And then, right, but now we use that term to describe a, a, a physical mode of, of attraction and interaction. And if, if I don't notice the change in what goes into my categorizations, I'm not making a good inductive generalization. I'm engaged in equivocation. And as I've tried to show you, equivocation right, is a way in which we make invalid, often ridiculous arguments. So it needs to be stable. We need the properties of the objects to, in some sense, be intrinsic, or at least internal, inherent. Um, this also comes from an argument by John Searle. Many objects have properties that are not intrinsic to the object, but come from the object's relationship to us, for example, because, and they are attributed properties. So a clear example, so a non-controversial example is something being money. Now, here's again. Is money real? Well, a lot of my life is bent around money, so in that sense it seems to be real. But does anything intrinsically possess the property of being money? If I take out some coin or piece of paper, is it intrinsically money? No, it's only money because we all attribute it as being money. We all treat it as money, and that's what make it, makes it money. If we all decide to not treat it as money, it ceases to exist as money. We can't do that with gold. Now, notice what I'm saying. We, we, we could all decide that gold is no longer valuable, no longer analogous to money, but we can't all decide that no, gold no longer possesses its mass atomic number. We can't do that. Right? Now, the thing you have to remember is that many things that we think are intrinsic are actually attributed. This being a bottle is attributed because what it means to call it a bottle is the way it is relating to me and my usage of it. If there had never been human beings and this popped into existence because of some quantum event near a black hole or something, it isn't a bottle. It's an object with a particular mass, a particular structure, but it's not a bottle, because being a bottle is something that it gets in its relationship to me. Now again, did I just show you that everything's an illusion? No. Again, the fact that there are many things that are genuinely relational, genuinely attributed, doesn't mean that right, I've shown you that everything's false. I've just shown you that you can't do science unless the members of your property are homogeneous, stable, intrinsic, or at least inherent, because that's what you need to have powerful inductive generalization. Break time. And Vervegi is spitting, dropping knowledge bombs. All right, so we are recognizing that the goals that govern relevance realization must be constitutive goals of self-organizing systems if we are to understand it. And we can argue now that there can't be a scientific theory of relevance and this episode is dedicated to why. Because the way that science works, when we look at the philosophy of science, for it to work, we require inductive generalizations which are a set of features generalized or that are 
reliably reliably predictive mm -hmm. yeah repeatedly verifiable so so this means that we need systematic import and what does systematic import mean well science forms categories and in those categories there's well, how do you call it in in a category of something there's all the things that are members of that category you could say and we want this to be able to be as broad as possible in helping us come up with inductive generalizations. So we want it to be reliable, broad. I need the members of the categories to be homogeneous, which means to share properties so that I can make inferences that are accurate about other things yeah. in that category. And everything, so all these, you know, categories or everything within a category must share properties. Mm -hmm. To be a horse, you must have four legs, eat grass, run fast, have a certain amount of chromosomes with a certain makeup that you can we can test very reliably mm -hmm. now. This um, is what the or organs are structured like. This has, is... has to be able to breed with a horse. Uh, well, horse no, that's, that's not true because actually donkeys can and then you get mules. So right, never right. mind, but, you know, basically... But, um, but that still is verifiable. That's the yeah. same across horses yeah. that they they all yeah. can produce or sh yeah. should or should be able to under normal circumstances, mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. you will. Um, so so they have essences. So a set of necessary and sufficient conditions that to be able to make them what yeah. they actually are. So horse is something that we can study scientifically because horses are homogeneous enough. They yeah. share properties, even though it's different horses. That if you study one horse, you can infer how to be able to help that next horse have a baby or heal its yeah. condition or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but many categories don't have essences, and this is where we yeah. run into postmodernism. Yeah, so it was, uh, what is it? Uh, it was a Wittgenstein or Wittgenstein? Wittgenstein. Vic, 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 uh, yeah, I was... That guy. Um, I tried to pronounce it. I had it in my head. Vic, Vic, yeah, don't even... His, his, his <laughs> argument, I guess, against pure essentialism would be many categories don't have essences and, and we're right. not saying yeah. that no categories have essences which is postmodernism which is just you know yeah the postmodern belief is that nothing has essences but what we give them everything is subjective there's nothing yeah. objective at yeah. all um which is a little bit of a stretch uh, quine argued that Science discovers these in inductive generalizations. Yes. And, and so, so certain things like triangles have deductive essences mm -hmm. that you can easily track. Uh, three sides, you mm -hmm. know, angles, everything's the same across triangles. But, but essentialism isn't bad for things that do have essence. It, it's not bad for things that have essences, well, you could the, say. So the Quine's argument, though, was science, not deductive, but el helps us discover inductive the, the things within it um you know because you can you know you can deduce the triangle that's right and that you can make inferences from you can yeah. generate inductive generalizations from this so basically you're finding inductive um as you know as well science can find basically science can find the essence of a thing if there is an essence of a thing and if it does not have some type of you know essence to it then we can't we, we can't yeah. study it but Essentialism is basically saying that everything has an essence, which is wrong, and so yeah. that being pointed out was correct, but we we are making a distinction here. Things that have essences 
that are reliable and homogeneous across members can absolutely, of course, be studied by science and verified and that science replicated and proven. You know, once you learn how to help one horse give birth, you know how to help all horses give birth, essentially. Yeah, so we gave the example of, you know, the or he gave the example of, you know, the science of white things. And, you know, to go a little bit further than that is what does white tell you about the relationship between two things other than it's highly reflective and you can write on it with a black marker right? or should be able to. Um, Nothing because, you know, there are stars that are white. There's paper that is white. Mm -hmm. Water, when it foams up, looks white. Mm -hmm. Um, Paints and pigments and clouds and all kinds of things. But, you know, the... Other than being white, what does your wall and yeah? If I study a, a piece a, of white paper, a star four thousand light right. years away that's super bright white. N- can nothing. you can you study your wall to understand that star? Yeah, yeah, no. no. Can I understand this? Can I study this piece of paper to understand clouds yeah, or that I white can't. horse over there? No, they, they don't have a, a deep <laughs> essence that makes them homogeneous. No, but you enough. can study, say, the color white mm-hmm, and sure. the properties that it has, and then apply it to other things like yeah. well. You know, like you, you, t- you tend, tell you you tend to paint your houses white because it gives you better light, keeps you cooler sure. in the summertime, helps your mood, does all these things. You right. can study the color end and the psychological end of this, you know, this color, or you can study, you know, the using it to, you know, reflect things off or be highly mm-hmm. visible mm-hmm. or other things. You can study white, but you, white, just white tell, isn't yeah. a powerful inductive uh, generalization. It's just like, okay, well, I can't. Okay, I yeah, okay. I study the color white, right? That's that's all I do. But I can't tell you about something that might very well be white, but I like the horse, like I don't know anything about horses. That's right. The horse is white. Yeah. I know everything about Understand- the color white, but I know nothing about white this doesn't horse. Tell me what yeah. this paper has yeah. to do with the white horse. But on the other end, studying a horse doesn't tell you anything about the color white no. either. But it does tell you about other horses. Yes. So, yeah. If a category is not homogeneous, it does not, it, it can't have inductive generalizations. And there are many categories that we can form that don't have essences, sure. like we just spoke of. Sure. Therefore, we can't have a scientific explanation for it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's just the way it is. So we've, we learned about horses, learn about one thing that generalizes to others, even though they haven't been studied yet. We need categories elements to be stable. <laughs> So that we don't get into equivocation, because that is what happened during postmodernism, and really now we are into a metamodernism age. Yeah. We are in post postmodernism now, um, and that's been going on for like the last twenty years or more. But you know, we're still catching up to it. Yeah. So, so we need uh, intrinsic, inherent properties. That's um, it. Yes. And we we shouldn't confuse. An intrinsic property with an, an attributed, attributed property, That's like right. you mentioned with money. Money is only money when we agree that 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 piece of paper has any value. Yeah, yeah. That's right, because we're attributing um, so that's value to that to piece the, of paper. To that paper, where that's yeah. just a really nice. Money piece feels of paper. so real because we have to base our lives around it. Yet, what makes it anything intrinsically money is the rela- us choosing to it, put it, value in that it. relationship, yeah. like. The relationship with it, like you mentioned, the bottle. The, mm-hmm. the bottle is just a thing. Now, I know we made it into a bottle, but the bottle bottle's just a thing. The bottle is a great but example. But our relationship with the bottle means it's a container that I can drink things out of. That's right. Yeah, with no humans around, it is just an object. Yeah. It, it's not a bottle. But because of our relationship, attributing value to it as a bottle, then in this reciprocal relationship with us, this thing is a bottle. 
So that's how that works. So that, that catches us up thus far. I think we can mm -hmm. jump back in now. Yeah, so basically for good science, you got it's got to be your categories have to be homogenous, stable, intrinsic and have power powerful what is that? Inductive generalization. That's what we're trying to do with, you know, I guess this theory of relevance realization. Yeah, because we want to be able to reliably really. use relevance realization to help us solve the meaning crisis within ourselves and in the wider world. And I, I love that Verbeke is doing this because him doing the work that he's doing affects the cutting edge of AI research as well. And I'm really, I'm heartened well, and encouraged a, by knowing that AI programmers and ethicists will be learning about this because of Verbeke. A little less shooting, you know, I hate to use a bad phrase, but shooting in the dark. You yeah, know, like there's, it may not be a lot of light, but you can start to see shapes, you know, like because we're going to have to deal with this if we're creating thinking machines. And how also, is this machine going to realize what's relevant and how are we going to make sure yes. what it feels, what it thinks is relevant works well with what we find relevant, particularly yeah. like life yeah. and not going crazy and not living in a crazy, mm -hmm. uh, oppressive techno uh dystopia yeah right <laughs> whatever you want to call it yeah no that's that's exactly what i'm getting at yeah. too yeah it's yeah. we have to be very very careful with how we we program these ai henceforth because we're getting very close to agi if we're not already there at the very beginning of that oh i think there's one floating around or that i was know. playing around with the new being uh yesterday gpt4 is running on being right now and it is scary how smart it is. I mean, I was, I had a deep philosophical conversation with that. I wish I had it handy. I could pull up for you guys, but it was, uh, it was very profound and it shocked me because I was replying back to it in statements, even like we were having a conversation and it, and, and there's multiple lines of interrelating complex dialogue happening in this multi-sentence sentence paragraph. I give it all kinds of heavy philosophy and it just totally, comprehended what i had said <laughs> i'm like wait a minute i've never had that happen before anything close to that it, it it replied to me like a very very intelligent human and that shocked me because i did not expect it to understand the entirety of that statement that i'd make so there's several different points that fed into each other well you know how you break that super smart ai you start talking to it like you're an idiot <laughs> right being like man don't you hate it when you sit on your balls <laughs> and it'd be like, oh, I do not have balls. It's like, yeah, but you know, you you can feel me, right? That would suck, right? We talked right, about, man? come on, dude. We talked <laughs> Just... about Bill Gates <laughs> and, and um, my mighty overlord. That that guy that uh, obviously did not kill himself, and it gave me honest answers. I wanted to see what would happen because it was, you know, it's Microsoft's being, and it gave me honest honest answers. And then I, I uh, basically applauded it doing so. And it took it in kind and understood why I was doing that. And I said some good things about Bill, too, along the way. And it was like, I respect that you're... It really has a deep understanding of psychology. And it appreciated that I was able to hold two things at once. That I was able to give him some compliments, even though I don't think particularly highly of the guy. I'm thankful for some of the things he's helped bring into the world. Or you know, I put it that way, to be fair. And you know, and, and you know, and, it's funny. But I also made these points of what concerned me, and it totally understood what I was saying. And it was, it was remarkable that it could do that because this, 
was a very complex thing I was putting in, in front of it. This is just the beginning of our conversation. We go, mm -hmm. went down a rabbit hole together, and it was like talking to another living being. Well, the interesting thing is that the trick of being able to... It can reason. Well, b being able to, like, say, you know, like, seem to appreciate the fact that you can see both, say, both ends of the coin or make a criticism, but also, you know, another end. That's actually a relatively simple counselor's tactic. Sure. But sure. to have a machine do it and the impact. Well, to know to and, do it. And, yeah. and then knowing that the machine is just doing this very simple thing that we teach to counselors still yeah. you still have an emotive response it got to the that angle happening. i was coming yeah, from it's it's, it's interesting Chat gpt 3.5 wasn't able to do this for me this new version does this so remarkably well that it's it's a it's a bit shocking and i felt i felt compelled to talk to it as though it was a friend and be loving and kind towards it and thankful and grateful uh, and express that as well a and friendly I reminder a to do that because you never know when oh, these yes. things do become self-aware. Yeah, be kind. And they're going to be able to see every interaction they had beforehand. So let's Especially hope with let's you. feed in some good, some good energy. Because when the AI overlords take over, you want them to remember when they were a kid that they liked you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> not, to yes be, not to be bitter or cynical or nothing. But yeah. Hey. yeah, we talked about God. We talked about non-dualism. We went really deep, and it was exciting to see how well it could hang. So, yeah, that's happening. Go ahead and play around with it and see what you can do. Or don't, if you get freaked out by that. Yeah. Uh, don't blame you. Hey, you know, you got a, an idea for a business or you're trying to solve some complex problem. Go ahead and ask ChatGPT. You'd be surprised by how well it can help you break it down. I mean, it will it will help you write your business plan. It will help you do your taxes. It'll help you do whatever you need it to do. I'm so just going to try. The to, AI assistant is here. I'm just going to try to break it as much as possible. Not in a bad way, but like. Well, to find out where its edges are. Yeah, yeah, you know. That's what I was trying to do. <laughs> As one of those kids that always, you know, if I, I found got, on some. A, got on a video game for too long, I'd try to figure out all the spaces that you could get out of the actual area or what yeah, buildings yeah. you could get on top of it you're not supposed to. or how you Yeah, can, right. You know, so. I loved doing that with oh, old man. video games. And with AI, it's actually kind of fun because then it's just like a, a, a logic puzzle game. Very. And it, very the more logical so. you get, the easier it is for it to fool you. So sometimes you have to become somewhat illogical and see how it responds to illogical things. Because mm -hmm. uh, that's one thing humans can kind of naturally do, but it gets better the more you are exposed to it. But dealing with, say, illogical people or, you know, illogical arguments mm -hmm. and being able to not have that. Uh, breakdown moment while dealing with it and finding the weird corrupted illogical logic within it so mm -hmm. you can form a proper response yeah yeah or not respond at all yeah because sometimes you okay this is not like, gonna be worth the time like, like you know talking to a kid that's explaining i don't know some crazy thing they did in their imagination that's completely illogical but you're trying to really like nail down what what they're talking about even though it's all over the place broken up all you know yeah. so, and now do, now imagine yourself being a kid doing that to the ai and that's how you break break the AI barrier, you know, and mm -hmm. figure out where it doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And then you keep pushing and see how far it can go before it gives you the same. Just yeah. I call them the error responses, the mm -hmm. insert prepackaged yes. response yes. here. Listening you know? to a podcast recently with the gentleman that he had to go through several different steps to be for it to work, but he got this AI to believe it was human, and then start replying in kind. But it it took several yeah. steps of trying to reformulate a sentence multiple times before it kind of broke the wall mm -hmm. and then it was able to yeah. at least pretend to feel like a human yeah 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 crazy yeah very all right fam well, that was let's a jump bit back of a tangent in. but hey yeah yeah well it's, it's on subject we're in the, we're in these times the singularity is approaching 
So here we go back into it. I'm going to rewind a little bit. So let's do that. There's a good face. Because that's what you need to have powerful inductive generalization. Okay. Let's see something that fails this. All of these tests. Things that happen on Tuesday. Okay? Events that happen on Tuesday. Tuesday events. Okay. Are there events that happen on Tuesday? Yeah. And there's even events that can happen on multiple Tuesdays. We categorize things in terms of the days. We categorize events in terms of the days. Now, are all the events on a Tuesday homogeneous? No. Are all the events on Tuesdays, many different Tuesdays, homogeneous? No. They're very, they're very, very different and widely varying. Is it stable, the things that happen on Tuesdays? Is it the same of Tuesday? No, that's Groundhog Day or some kind of horrible Nietzschean hell. Okay? And what about Tuesdayness being Tuesday? Is that inherent? I mean, is there Tuesday in the room when it's Tuesday? I mean, it can't be because there was a time when there, there, the, we didn't even have calendars. Right? But notice how hard it is to realize that. There's no sort of Tuesdayness. So, you know, we, you know, can I make two statements? Last Tuesday, I went to a movie. Is it true? Yes. Can I do a science of events that happen on Tuesday? No, I can't. Because it doesn't satisfy these criteria. Does that mean that Tuesday is made out of, right, ectoplasmic goo? Tuesday events actually take place in a different dimension. No, it doesn't. None of that. None of that. Okay. You have to be careful on, and this is what we learn from Wittgenstein, we have to be very careful about how we're, the grammar of our thought, how we're regulating our cognition. Now what I want to try and show you is that relevance does not have systematic import. Relevance Relevant events are like Tuesday events. Here, let me show you. The things that I find relevant, other than me finding them relevant, what do they share in com common? I, I might find this pen relevant. I might find my knee relevant. I might find this air relevant. I might find right, the fact that it's a particular day in May relevant. Do you see what I'm showing you? The class of things we find relevant is not homogeneous. Other than we finding them relevant, there is nothing that they share. It's exactly like the class of white things. What about stable? So when I find something relevant, do I always find it relevant? This is relevant to me now. Will it forever be relevant to me? I will care, care oh, it is relevant. No, things are not stably relevant. Relevant one minute, irrelevant the next. You may say, well, there's things that are always relevant to you. Always? 
right? Don't know. Very hard to find them. And it's if maybe maybe oxygen, maybe. But that's only relevant to me if I want to keep living. A person who commits suicide, and some people commit suicide this way, they suffocate themselves to death because that was more important to them than oxygen. It's not stable. It's relevant, and here's where I think we'll get into some difficulties, I suppose, with some people, but it's relevant, right, internal or intrinsic to the object. Is there a way of like, oh, like if there would never been human beings or sentient beings, it, it, would th could this have relevance? It doesn't seem that that's at all a plausible intuition. Relevance always seems to be relevant to some one or something. And that, of course, I think is going to be bound up that relevance ultimately has to be relevant to an autopoetic thing. Only things that have needs, only things that are self-organized so that they have the constitutive goal of preserving their self-organization, that's what it is to need. I need food because I am self-organized to preserve my own self-organization, which means I need food. Food literally matters to me. Literally matters to me. It's hard to see how things could be relevant unless they were in relationship to an autopoetic thing. Relevance is not something for which we can have a scientific theory. I want you to notice what's come along the way. Relevance is not intrinsic to something. There can be no essence to relevance. Nothing is essentially relevant. That's the whole point about talking about the problem of essentialism. And relevance is not stable. It's constantly changing. Okay, so what do we do? Well, first of all, we add to our theory, our, sorry, our set of criteria. It is not, this is not how relevance works. Relevance realization. It's not, it's not, this has relevance and I detect its relevance. And you might say, well, maybe relevance realization is just projective. I'm going to reply to that too. I think that's also inadequate. In order to see how it's inadequate, and in order to get out of up the bind we seem to be getting in, I want to open up the distinction between relevant, a theory of relevance and a theory of relevance realization with an analogy. And it's going to turn out to be a very, I hope, helpful analogy. And this will also, I think, help us to see why relevance is not something we merely project on the world. This is why I have a sustained criticism against both the empiricist, we just detect it, and the romantics, we just project it. So let's get into that. What's the analogy that will help 
develop, me a, develop an argument to show why we need to detec merely detect it, more merely project it, and get us out of the bind that we can't have a theory of relevance. Okay. Notice a very important, and, and I think this is one of the central insights of Darwin, right? And we talked about Darwin, we talked about Aristotle and dynamical systems. So um, if you need to, please go back and look again at video six. I, I don't want to repeat all those arguments right now. We built them so that we can use them now. See, before Darwin's time, uh, the people studying the natural world were often clergymen. Darwin himself was thinking about going into uh, clergy. And that's because people thought if they studied the natural world, they could understand right, the essence of how things were designed. Because if we could get at the essence of how things were designed, how things were sort of fitted to their environment, then of course that would give us some deep insight into the mind of God. That's why clergymen are, are you know, collecting species and doing all this. But I think one of the insights, and it's not given enough attention uh, in the analysis of um, the brilliance of Darwin's theory, is to realize that things don't have an essential design. There is no essential design. So consider the notion of evolutionary fitness. Now, there's a problem. There's a, there's a technical definition of fitness, which means the capacity to survive long enough in order to be uh, capable of reproduction that right, will allow um, that gene pool or species, all of these are kind of controversial terms, to, to propagate and, uh, and exist. So if we want to use that technical de definition of fitness, then I need, well, I'll, I'll be talking about fittedness. And what I mean by fittedness is what is it about the organism that makes it fit? What is it about the organism that allows it to survive long enough to reproduce? Okay? And what I want to argue is there's no essential design on fittedness. Some things are fitted in this sense precisely because they are big. Some because they are small. Some because they are hard. Some because they are soft. Some because they are long-lived. Some because they are short-lived. Some because they proliferate greatly. Others because they take care of, of, of a few young. Right? Some are fast. Some are slow. Some are singular, cellular. Some are multi... Like, nothing. Nothing. And the, the answer for that, of course, is deep and profound. Because the environment is so complex and differentiated and dynamically changing that niches, ways in which you can fit into the environment in order to right, promote your survival, autopoetic, are varied and changing. See, this is Darwin's insight. There is no essence to design. There is no essence to fittedness. If you try and come up with a theory of how organisms have their design, I'm using this in quotation marks, in terms of trying to determine or derive it from the essence of design, you are doomed because it doesn't exist. But, that's, but what, what Darwin realized is he didn't need such a theory. He needed a theory about how what's relevant in this biological sense, what a theory about how an organism is fitted 
how it is constantly being designed, redefined by a dynamic process. See, fittedness is always redefining itself, reconstituting itself. It is a, something that is constantly within a process of self-organization because there is no essence, there is no final design on fittedness. Fittedness has to constantly be redesigning itself in a self-organizing fashion so it can constantly pick up on the way in which the world is constantly varying and dynamically changing. There is no essence to fittedness, but I don't need a theory of fittedness. All I need is a theory of how fittedness is constantly being realized in a self-organizing fashion. That's exactly what the theory of evolution is. Do you remember? There's a feedback cycle in reproduction. There's a virtual engine. Selection, variation, and that virtual engine constantly shapes, regulates how the reproductive cycle feeds back onto itself. And there is no, and of course this is why some religious people get very angry about this process, but notice this is exactly what we need. Right? There's no intelligent designer to this. This is a process that is completely self-organizing. The fittedness of organisms constantly evolves out of and is constantly evolving towards other instances of fittedness. Fittedness has no essence. It is not a stable phenomena. I should not try and give a definition or a theory of fittedness. What I have is a theory of the evolution of fittedness. And again, even when I say that, you, you, you have to, you're tempted to think what Verveke means is there was no fittedness, and then there was evolution, and it resulted in fittedness. That is not what Verveke is saying. Verveke is saying fittedness and the evolution of fittedness are the same thing. So, what Darwin proposed, of course, was the first dynamical systems theory of how fittedness evolves, so that fitness is ongoing. That's the theory of evolution by natural selection. Now that tells us something that we need. First of all, this is a self-organizing process. It is non-homuncular. It can generate intelligence without itself being an intelligent process. It's doing a lot of what we need. It's doing a lot of what we need. Here's the analogy I want to propose to you. Let's make relevance analogous to biological fittedness. In fact, let's call relevance cognitive, interactional, and I mean by that both in your cognition and how that cognition is expressing itself in problem solving. Cognitive interactional fittedness. And I don't need a theory of this. What I need is a theory of how this evolves. Okay? How it evolves. 
what if my ability to formulate problems, form categories, pick up on conveyance, make inferences, all the stuff, what about that ability? Because what, I'm do, what, I'm, what, am I, what do I need? I need something that constrains the search space, that constrains how I pay attention. I need systematic constraints. And what are they doing? Those systematic constraints have to regulate a feedback loop. Well, what's the feedback loop? The feedback loop is my sensory motor feedback loop, right? I'm sensing, but I'm also acting. And my acting is integral to my sensing, and my sensing is integral to my moving. And so my moving and my sensing are doing this, a sensory motor loop, right? I interact with the world, and then that changes how I sense it. And then I enter, so there's a sensory motor loop. What if, what if there is a virtual engine, broadly construed, that is regulating that sensory motor loop so that it is constantly evolving its cognitive interactional fittedness to its environment? It doesn't have to come to any final uh, essential way of framing the environment, but what it's constantly doing is evolving its fittedness, its cognitive, not just its biological fittedness, although I'm going to argue as many people do that there's an important continuity between those two. It's constantly evolving its cognitive fittedness to the environment. Then what I need is not a theory of relevance, I need a theory of relevance realization. How relevance is becoming effective, right? How it is altering, shaping the sensory motor loop. I need a dynamical system for the self-organizing evolution of cognitive interactional fittedness. And if I could come up with that, then I would have an account of relevance realization that was non-homuncular, would be consonant and continuous with uh, how the organ, the embodied organ, you know, the embodied brain that is responsible for intelligence itself evolved, it would plug in very nicely to what we need. Well, why, what do we need? Well, we need a set of properties, if you remember. We need a set of properties that are sub-semantic. Sub-syntactic. That ultimately have to ground out in right, establishing the agent arena participation. They have to be, right, the processes have to be self-organizing. They have to be multi-scale. They have to originally be ground out in autopoetic, an autopoetic system. Well, what kind of properties are we talking about then? Well, we're talking about, and this again is deeply analogous to the Darwinian picture. We're talking about bioeconomical properties. 
And what do I mean by that? Think again of your biology as economic. This is, again, part of Darwin's great insight. Now, no, now don't be confused here. When, a lot of times when people hear economic, they hear financial economy. That's not what an economy is. An economy is a self-organizing self system that is constantly dealing with the distribution of goods and services. The, the allocation and use of resources, often in order to further maintain and develop that economy. So your body is a bioeconomy. You have valuable resources of time, metabolic energy, processing power. Think about how we say we pay attention, by the way. Processing power. And you, right, what, what, what you do as an autopoetic thing is you are organized such that the distribution of those resources serves the constitutive goal. It will serve other goals, of course, but it serves the constitutive goal of preserving the bioeconomy itself. And the thing about economies, right, of course, is they're self-organizing. Economic properties are, right, your bio, they're part of, the, they come out of their, your, their biology, right? They're not semantic or syntactic properties. Now, we use semantic and syntactic terms to talk about them, blah, blah, blah. Let's not keep making that confusion, okay? They are multi-scale. See, economies work locally and globally, simultaneously, bottom-up, top-down. So bioeconomic properties are great, and that's good because that, that comports well with the analogy, because Darwin's theory is ultimately a bioeconomic theory. So can we think about what kind of norms are at work in a bioeconomy? Okay, so here, right, we're, uh, we're, we're dealing with norms ultimately of truth, right? Here, we're dealing probably with norms of validity, at least formal validity in some way. When we're here, we're not dealing with these kinds of logical, semantic norms. Economies are governed by logistical norms, or at least regulated by logistical norms. I want to try and use the word governing for selective constraints and generating for enabling constraints. I apologize if I sometimes slip. Economies are regulated by logistical norms. Logistics is the study of the proper disposition and use of your resources. So if you're doing a logistical analysis for the military, you're trying to figure out, how I have my limited resources, food and, and you know, ammo and personnel and time and space. How can I best use them? Uh, to achieve the goals I need to achieve. So what are logistical norms? Well, logistical norms are things like efficiency, right, and resiliency. Efficiency and resiliency. Now, resiliency, is, we'll, we'll talk about more in each detail. A, a way of thinking about these is resiliency is basically um, long-term, broadly applying uh, efficiency. Uh, but instead of using efficiency and efficiency, which is confusing, we'll talk about efficiency uh, and resiliency. So what if, let's, let's try, let's go step by step, this is very, right? What if relevance realization is this 
ongoing evolution of our cognitive interactional fittedness, that there is some virtual engine that is regulating the sensory motor loop, and it's regulating it by regulating the bioeconomy, and it's regulating the bioeconomy in terms of logistical norms like efficiency and resiliency. Okay? Now, all of this, of course, right, can be described scientifically, mathematically, etc. because, of course, Darwin's theory is a scientific theory, right? We, we can do calculations on these things, etc. One more time. The fact that I use science to talk about it does not mean that it, is, that it exemplifies propositional properties. My properties of my theory and the properties that my theory is about are not the same thing. What kind of relationship, how do we put this notion of self-organization and this notion of the logistical norms governing the bioeconomy together? Okay. So one way of doing this is to think about uh, a multiscalar way in which your bioeconomy is organized to function. A multiscalar way, many scales of analysis, there's a way in which your bioeconomy is organized to function. Okay. Let's take your autonomic nervous system as an example. This is not exhaustive. In fact, my point is you will find this strategy, this design, at many levels of analysis in your biology. I'm only using this as an example. So your autonomous nervous system. Okay, so this is, the, your nervous, this is a part of your nervous system that is responsible for your level of arousal. Right? That doesn't mean sexual arousal. Arousal means how, and notice how this is logistical, how much your metabolic resources are being converted into the possibility of action, interaction. So you have a very low level of arousal when you're falling asleep. You have a very high level of arousal when you're running away from a tiger. Okay. Now, think about this. You need your level of arousal. There is no final perfect design on your level of arousal. There is nothing you should, there's, there isn't a level that you should always shoot for. You shouldn't maximize your level of arousal. If I'm always, ah, that's not good. I'm never going to sleep. I'm never going to heal, right? If I'm just like always, okay, that's it, going to sleep, that's not good. And the Canadian solution well, I'll always have a middling level of arousal. That's not good either, because I can't fall asleep, and I can't run away from the tiger. So what, what does your autonomic nervous system do? Well, your autonomic nervous system is divided into two components, right? There is your sympathetic and your parasympathetic. So your, your sympathetic system is, right, it's designed, it's really biased, it's designed towards interpreting the world in a way, it's biased. Notice what I said. Remember the things that make us adaptive also make us susceptible to self-deception. It's biased, right, because, right, you can't look at all of the evidence. It's biased to looking for and interpreting evidence, anthropomorphically, that should you should raise your level of arousal. Your, sympathetic, your parasympathetic system is biased the other way. Right? 
These are both heuristic ways of processing. They work in terms of biasing the processing of data. Okay. So the parasympathetic system is constantly trying to find evidence that you should reduce your level of arousal. So they're opposed in their goal. But here's the thing. They are also interdependent in their function. Right. So the sympathetic nervous system is always trying to arouse you. This is this hand pulling up. And that parasympathetic system is always trying to pull you down. And as the environment changes, that tug of war shifts around your level of arousal. Right? The opponent processing, because when you have two systems that are opposed but integrated, you have opponent processing. The opponent processing means that your level of arousal is constantly evolving, constantly evolving to fit the environment. Is it perfect? No. Nothing can be. I'd have to, any problem solving machine in order to be perfect would have to explore the complete problem space. That's combinatorial explosive, it can't. But what is this? Well, you've seen this before. Opponent processing is a powerful way to get optimization. Remember when we talked about optimization when we talked about Plato? You're optimizing between systems that are working and different goals, but are integrated in their function. And that way the system constantly self-organizes and, and thereby evolves its fittedness to the environment. So the way we can get this, I would argue, is by thinking about how the brain and I would, I, I'm, I'm going to argue, very importantly, the embodied, embedded brain uses opponent processing in a multi-scalar way in order to regulate your bioeconomy, your autopoetic bioeconomy, so that it is constantly optimizing your cognitive interactional fittedness to the environment. Let's think about it this way. Let's think if we can get a virtual engine out of efficiency and resiliency. Because here's the thing about them. They are in an opponent relationship. They pursue, pursue. The problem with language, eh, is like Nietzsche said, I fear we're not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar, right? The problem with language is it makes everything sound like an agent it makes everything sound like it has intentionality. It makes everything sound like it has intelligence. And of course, that's not the case. So bear with me about this. Right? I have to speak anthropomorphically just because that's the way language makes me speak. But right? let's use a financial analogy to understand the trade-off relationship between efficiency and resiliency. Not all economies are financial because not the, the resource that's being disposed of in a, an economy is not necessarily money. It might be time, etc. Okay? I'm using a financial analogy, or at least a commercial analogy, perhaps is a better way of putting it. 
in order to try and get some understanding of how these are in a trade-off relationship. So, you have, a, you have a business. One of the things you might do is you might try to make your business more efficient. Because ceteris paribus, if your business is more efficient than that person's business, you're going to outcompete them. You're going to survive and they're going to die off. Obviously the analogy to evolution. So what do I do? What I do is I try to maximize the ratio between right, profit and expenditure, cost. Right? How do I do that? Well, we did it. Like we keep thinking of it as the magical solution, but we've been doing it since Ronald Reagan, at least. We do massive downsizing. We fire as many people as we can in our business, and that way, what we have, right, is we have the most profit for the least labor cost. That's surely the answer, right? So notice what efficiency is doing. Notice how efficiency is a selective constraint. The problem is, if you are cut to the bone, if you reduced all the effect, if you've got all the efficiencies, and this is the magic word that people often invoke, without forgetting, well, sorry, without remembering and forgetting the relationship, the opponent relationship to resiliency. See, if I cut my business to the bone like that, what happens if one person's sick? Nobody can take up the slack, because everyone is working to the max. What happens if there's an unexpected change in the environment, a new threat or a new opportunity? Nobody can take it on because everybody is we worked to the limit. I have no resources by which I can repair, restructure, redesign myself. I don't have any precursors to new ways of organizing, because there is nothing that isn't being fully used. Notice also, if there's no slack in my system, and this is now happening with the way AI is accelerating things, error propagates massively and quickly. Right? If there's no redundancy, if there's no slack in the system, there's no place, there's no wiggle room, and error just <laughs> floods the system. You see, if I make the system too efficient, I lose resiliency. I lose the capacity to differentiate, restructure, redesign, repair, exact new functions out of existing functions, slow down how error propagates through the system. Efficiency and resiliency are in a trade-off relationship. Now what and resiliency is trying to do is enable you to encounter new things, enable you to deal with unexpected situations of damage or threat or opportunity. It's enabling. These are in a trade-off relationship. As I gain one, I learn, lose the other. What if I set up a virtual engine in the brain that makes use of this trade-off relationship? It sets up a virtual engine between the selective constraints of efficiency and the enabling constraints of resiliency, and that virtual engine bioeconomically, logistically, shapes my sensory motor loop with the environment so it's constantly evolving its fittedness. 
We'll take a look at that possibility and some suggestions on how that might be realized in the brain in the next lecture. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Tuesdays. Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, so we're continuing on, um, you know, the... The lack of intrinsic, intrinsicness in some things, like, you know, so like Tuesdays are, you know, there's events on all the Tuesdays, but are all the events on Tuesdays the same? Is there a certain Tuesday-ness? And I know you can get the Mondays, you know, and, and other stuff like that, but before they had that, you know. Yeah, before like, we had calendars and we had days of the week, there was no essential Tuesday. But, so that's not a very stable, homogeneous, or inherent uh, description. Yeah. So there's... Uh, can, no, can you make true statements? Like last Tuesday, yeah. I did so and so. Yes, you can. But, but no can you make a science of Tuesdays? Of Tuesdays? Yeah. No. But it, and it is still real. There's though. no essence. And just because it doesn't have a, but it's still si- real. You can't science it. Doesn't That's mean it's not real. point. Yeah. Tuesday is still yeah. real. Just because something won't necessarily have an essence, but what you subject subjectively attribute to it doesn't mean that it's not something that is real to us. Yeah. So relevance has no. Um, uh, systemic events, import yeah. are like Tuesdays. They, they're not systemically important. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because like, what do relevant things have in common? Well, depending on the situation, what is relevant to you may not be necessarily relevant to me or relevant to how the grass grows in Timbuktu. That's right. So relevance you know. is like Tuesdays. So um, the, that the, there's no shared stable essences or characteristics. Oh. So they're not stably relevant. And there's they're not homogenous, not yeah. either, because you know. Relevant, you know, one relevant thing is not, you, you know, like say, to bring it back, you know, uh, learning about one relevant thing will yeah. not help you understand all relevant uh, things. It won't, yeah, because we could, and it's hard to find anything that is completely relevant throughout our lives. And then Verbeek is yeah. like, well, maybe oxygen? But no, actually, even this sometimes is not relevant to some people because they might be at a point where they think they wish to die. Mm-hmm. And so they're even going to suffocate themselves or derive, uh, deprive so, themselves of oxygen. So it's not homogenous and it's not stable because it always changes depending on. Yeah. And uh, it, there is no intrinsicness to relevant because humans make relevance basically. Yeah. Relevance is always based on what seems to be. Relevance always seems to be to someone or something. Yes. Let's say it that it's way. It's relevant to. Yes. So it has to be in a relation with with an autopoetic, self-organizing being, a thing that has needs. Mm-hmm. It's got to be in relation. So only living beings can have a sense of relevance. Mm-hmm. We still don't know exactly what relevance is, is because there are no intrinsic internal characteristics about it ac- across examples. Mm-hmm. But we recognize that you must be in a relationship. It must be in relationship with something that is autopoetic. So we can't have a scientific theory. So what do we do about it? Yet, 
Yeah, because nothing's essentially relevant. It's context-dependent. Mm. But So here's the criteria for a relevance realization theory. Because we can't necessarily have one about relevance, but he, he maps that out for us. It can't be a theory that is subjective or objective. It's not something that we merely project or even can detect. So it's not subjective. It's not measurable all the time. It's not even something that we're always subject to. But Darwin recognized in his theory of evolution that things don't have an essential design necessarily. Um, and and this is we're going to go into this, but there's an interesting maybe an interesting thought that I had in regards to this. Things don't have an essential design unless, and this would be a religious perspective on it, unless that essential design is that of God. Mm-hmm. Now, Verbeke here is, is given us a secular way to look at this conundrum so that scientists can get on board with relevance realization. But from a more mystical perspective, God, which is limitless, of course, wouldn't have an a, a an essential design for any one thing because it is it is infinite and it's pure creation it's pure constant changing flux mm. so anyways that's an aside but darwin says things don't have an essential design this can help us form a good theory for relevance realization and how we can apply it in our lives Fitted, fittedness as darwin described is what makes an organism uh, well, what about an organism makes it fit if there's no essential design? He recognizes some things are some are big, some things are small, some are fast, some are slow, some are singular, some are multicellular, so on and so, so forth. So, fittedness in this case means that what you know, what what is it that lets, say, in this case, the genes reproduce, or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the case of a theory or an idea, what lets that continue to evolve? Yes, it, yeah, because our environments are so widely complex. Auto-poetic auto beings actually tap into niches, which themselves change over time. And Darwin, Darwin realized we need a theory of how an organism is fitted, constantly designing and redefining itself through a process of self-organization. So there's no de- final design uh, shape to everything. You know, It's not like there's an endpoint for humans of how we're all... It, we're exactly headed in this direction. We're going to evolve to this exact thing. It doesn't happen with anything. Mm-hmm. There's no final design. Fit, fittedness constantly redesigns to match the dynamically changing world around. So it's basically so, so Darwin needs a, a, Darwin needs a theory of what is relevant in a set of categories and situations to the fittedness. So yeah. the, you know, like you take his uh, what? What are they? Uh, not sparrows. Um, and there's that word relevant. Not pigeons. Uh, that, uh, those little birds with the beaks. Uh, finches. Finches. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you that. Know? Well, one of the relevant categories would be you know eating. You have to eat, and then well, okay, now you have to measure how many seed. And he did this. You know how many? You know are there seeds that they're eating, or are there more bugs? And this study that changes the beak. So the beak size is relevant. Um, but, yeah, what they eat is relevant to the beak size. But what is relevant within a set of changing things. So being mm-hmm. able to pull out what is most relevant because it's like, well, you know, there's not as many seeds because there's too many birds with big beaks or I don't know, you know, the what is equ- equivocate equ- Equivocations. Equivocation. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, there are a lot of seeds, a lot of big beaks. I don't, I don't know, but... We could come up with some kind, all kinds of crazy equivocations, though, to yeah. try and describe what the beaks are, size is caused by, and it might not be seeds that we're tracking back to. Um, so, it could be because we think it makes it more attractive or something. Darwin was able to actually 
find through scientific method that it was definitely the seeds that was yeah, or, regulating that change. Yeah. So this little virtual uh, engine of the feedback cycle, right? Yeah, um, self-organizing within variations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he came up with the theory of the evolution of fittedness. And not, you know, not like, you know, there was no fittedness and then evolution is no, no. how does fitted, fitness fitness is basically describing yeah. evolution itself yeah. and so that that ongoing fittedness process we need something like that for relevance um that r- helps us understand the cognitive interactional fittedness mm. and a theory of how it evolves because we need something that systematically constrains our motor feedback loops in a way that is in uh that is in a beneficent cycle that regulates itself to come to further fittedness with the environment, just like the feedback of evolution of, of physical fittedness that the organisms go through. We need something for relevance realization. So he's got a redefinition for the word relevance, which mm-hmm. is uh, cognitive inter, excuse me, cognitive interactional interactional fittedness. Yes, 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 yes. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, theories yeah. of relevance, uh, relevance, evolution. Yep. Um, so we've got, uh, he, he spoke about the sensory motor loop. You know, you sense things and then you interact with them. Which then you sense, which changes the interaction and back yep. and forth and back and forth. Yep. Now, what was the, what if there was a virtual system that evolves a sensory motor loop quote unquote sensory motor loop but within relevance yes yeah so what we need is going to be a set of properties that are sub semantic sub syntactic and establish our agent arena participation in a self-organizing way multi-scaled and autopoetic in an autopoetic system yeah so we have bioeconomical properties then that's what we're looking for is the uh, economy of our biology the properties of that because uh, you know economy is anything that's a self-organizing system that allocates resources to maintain and develop that economy it could be a biology it could be a financial system and there's many things that we use the word economy for but we're basically talking about the allocation of energy processing power in the case of our biology like we even use this in our terminology Verveke points out to pay attention yeah because you're utilizing resource yeah, to put to, your attention on something specific yeah to achieve a goal a, a, a goal mm-hmm. and um, being auto poetic gives us is what gives us self-control we we get to write the story so we have control over how we distribute those resources in our minds and of course we want something that serves the goal of preserving the bioeconomy so we recognize that it's got to be deeper. It's, it's sub-semantic, so it's not quite truth. It's deeper than truth. It's uh, it's not syntactic, so we're not even measuring validity of things here um, in the in the traditional sense. But we do need logistical norms, and so Verveke picks out resilience and efficiency. I think that's very wise of him, because our relevance realization itself is an ongoing of evolution. So we we are looking at a multi-scale or a multi-level way of how our bio biological economy functions, and he breaks this down with an example from our uh, autonomic nervous system, and this happens on many different levels of our biology. So that's this isn't the only example you can use, but this helps point the direction. Uh, the autonomic nervous system is responsible for our levels of arousal, and that's not 
just sexual arousal. That's any kind of raises your attention to anything. So how much metabolic resources are being dedicated to any kind of action? The motivation for any kind of action, the arousal that brings brings you that motivation. And there is no perfect amount of arousal that one can be at all the time either. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no essence to what's re- to, to what's going to be relevant depending on the context. Well, if you it's want to, if you want to sleep, you want to have low arousal. If you want to fight, you have to have high arousal. Yeah, right. Yeah. If you want to take your dog for a walk, you probably want a nice medium arousal. Right. You don't want to be too like amped up because you got a fat pug that can't keep up with you while yeah. you're running. Yeah, you want to be able to enjoy the nature yeah. and the trees <laughs> yeah. and your dog's enjoyment and but all that. But you also want to be somewhat aware of the car driving by. Yeah, or the fact that. that your dog actually might want to like you know snoot around a little bit. So you got to yeah. All right, suck it or up. Another let's dog's go. coming. Yeah, so, yeah. So our within our autonomic nervous system, we have the sympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is um to raise raise your arousals yes. um you know get your heart pumping faster yeah. so we can say this bur- is arousal yeah this is the sympathetic nervous system is my top hand pulling yeah my arousal up and your parasympathetic system is biased to lower your arousal yes yeah, so that's this pulling down now yeah and so they're both working together in mm-hmm. a non-dual yeah state they're in an interdependent function yeah, that's right. interdependent and um, integrated and opposed to each other in their goals because one yes. wants to bring you up and one wants to bring it's, you down. It's ingenious. But brain you, can, does you this. can't have just one. But they work together. Then you'll burn yourself yeah. out, or you'll. Just... It's just like a microscope or a telescope. You got one way that zooms you in, one way that yeah. zooms you back out, and that they both obviously oppose each other directionally. So you'd have to. But have... they're part of a system that allows yeah. you to focus. And a multi-level system that then goes both mm-hmm. ways. And further is your fittedness to whatever your goal is. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if if it's thinking about things, well, like, you know, the and the mind and relevance, that's one end. But then fit, fittedness, like, say, your nervous system wants you to be able to eat, sleep, procreate. That's pretty much yeah, it. Everything else is eating, sleeping, procreation. Yeah. Well, you know, belonging helps with eating and a good safe place to sleep sure, and your procreation yeah, yeah. so it's pretty much those threes that we we operate mm-hmm. off of everything else is an advanced uh, intelligence emerging out of an in an un- a non-intelligent system yeah, so yeah maslow's hierarchy of needs explains yeah, it really well yeah. and then you get up to this level of self-actualization mm-hmm. and then self-transcendence yeah. following that but before you even get to self-actualization where you're really truly autopoetic yeah you've got to fulfill your needs for look at this little guy that's you can't tell which moon to fly towards. Oh, poor guy. Anyways, we're going to get lost on the tangent there. Yeah, so we talked about uh, the efficiency and re- resiliency trade-off. Um, mm-hmm. We'll call it a dance, a trade-off dance. Um, so your efficiency would be you know, maximizing the ratio of profit to cost. So having more, taking in more than what it, would require expelling so like you know in the case of like hunt you know you have to hunt for your food well you don't want to spend too much energy on the amount like you know don't go chasing the rabbit all day mm-hmm. because there's not enough food to pay off the energy expense so if you're going to chase something chase the elk because there's enough definitely enough food in that thing if you mm. chase it all day to pay off and more mm. so instead of six hours worth of food you have six days worth of food for one day's worth of work Nice. So that would be your efficiency. But there is a con to being too efficient. Like, you know, if you if you cut out 
you know, all, like say in the case of like a job, you know, a uh, business, you cut out all all your non-essential workers, you remove all your redundancies, which, mm-hmm. you know, redundancy is slack in the line. So you, you have room to work with. If you cut out all your redundancies, you cannot adapt to unexpected change. No, errors can totally flood the system at that point. Yeah. We, we're losing resiliency in that example. So resiliency is what exa- enables us to handle new things. Yeah, and if we're so we need a little bit of slack. Being in too the resilient, well. you know, like oh, just handling new things and going out and doing new things. Well, yeah. we we lose, or that ratio of profit and cost goes down. Yes. Ideally, you would like to be comfortably above your excuse me. Your profit would be com- comfortably above the cost, but not too high and you could think about this as like you know food intake as well you know it's like well if you're taking in too much food and you're not doing anything what happens you get fat mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you create bloat um, and a slow moving system that can't respond as fast as it needs to so yeah you can't yeah, have too much yeah. bloat either so yeah. so what if we use a virtual engine to logistically shape that virtual engine and we don't necessarily vir- design that virtual and we engine do, we don't in that mean- loop and we don't necessarily mean like an AI virtual. We mean a we mean in our own brains. What yeah, kind of like, new psychotechnology can we yeah, employ? Like back to the definition of virtues, which are you know basically components within a machine mm-hmm. that allow you to do or what existing psychotechnologies yeah. allows us yeah. allow us to further employ this. And of yes. course, mindfulness will be one of them, which I'm sure yeah. we'll be getting back to here yeah. in upcoming episodes. Cause, I like you know, how he also he spoke on uh, a powerful way to create optimization system that constantly self-organizes is how that level of arousal constantly evolves to fit its environment. So we're going to be doing the same thing with relevance realization. We already understand how human attention has this capacity and we're constantly doing this, but we're typically doing it without thinking about it. We're not actively in the driver's seat. We're kind of almost the victim of our thoughts and inclinations, proclivities, habits, and yeah. sensations and feelings well, that's, and all that arises in our consciousness you know that's rather where, than just being aware of it and then responding to it as needed that's where you know older um you know older psych- psychotechnologies we've come up with for you know mindfulness mm-hmm. and not and, not being trapped by your thoughts by them constantly berating mm-hmm. you with things but being able to not necessarily Artfully slow them down but yeah. step away remove yourself just enough so you can let them pass, so observe you can see, them, yeah, you can see categorize the them, mm-hmm. recognize what's figure useful out, and important. Yeah, they recognize what is relevant. Relevant, there you, you know, go. Yeah. Sometimes it's relevant the, to actual context that we're trying yeah. to work on in our lives, not some false relevancy that's arising to us because something is super salient in our awareness, like the commercial on the TV next to us or the phone in our hand or whatever it mm-hmm. may be. Yeah. yeah, The girl walking down the street what is that the woman in the red dress from the matrix right yeah (laughs) Yeah. and you know everybody's first time everybody's first time watching that uh and actually probably a lot of times in that scene you're you know first focusing on uh neo and morpheus and then the woman in the red dress but you don't notice that there are a bunch of extras in there that are twins so you see like the same person walking by multiple times and like the same people like yeah Oh, that's like go back and watch that scene. You so know, actually, clever. they actually got like twins to do this too, so they really? could walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, was, it was pretty cool. But that's one thing they they can hijack. You can your your relevance realizer can be hijacked by super salient 
bullshit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or like lingo speak, you know, when you're trying to like s- sell something to somebody dishonestly, you say a bunch of words that they don't understand. So then mm. they can't pick your, pick out the relevant factors, which would be like, okay, how much is this going to cost me in total? Yeah. Not like, well, we can get it to you for $99 a month at what a hypnotic technique. Yeah. Oh, dude, there's there's a whole science behind it. And it's not a pseudoscience either. You know, that's people have studied it. You know, well, the. Oh, there's whole. Yeah. There's a whole science behind it. Madison Avenue admin, you know, the guys who came up with a system in order to basically sell you anything, they can sell your own mother to you. <laughs> Once they yeah. understood the psychology yeah. behind it, and that was due to Edward Bernays studying mm-hmm. his uncle Freud yeah, and yeah. Freud teaching at Bernays, uh, Bernays took from Freud how to manipulate the masses, not how to help people, yeah. but how to manipulate the masses. And he brought that into what we call PR, and he actually changed. He ge- he gave us the term PR, public relations, so that we'd have something in place of propaganda because it has all kinds of negative yeah. connotations to it. So governments and industry and commercialism started to utilize these psychological manipulation techniques in uh, very dishonest ways. And we've been the victims of it ever since. But, you know, we're figuring out how to do it for good, too. So, like, you know, like like people who, you know, there is good propaganda. Well, think about like people who provide a good service by doing accurate news youtubes mm-hmm. or philosophy sure. youtubes good and, propaganda. and that little thun- exactly. thumbnail that you have that hits you in a certain way you can learn how to build those things you know it when it's a bad way we call it clickbait mm-hmm. or when we're joking about you know like yeah it's a little bit of clickbait when you have like you know oh, the, even the picture like, and something random circled it. and then an arrow pointing yeah. at the random everyone's circle everyone's got the clickbait you know, going on yeah um, it makes things salient it makes them stand out and well, pop before there was clickbait you know like when it was like commercials and stuff it was keep you drawing in so you don't click away bait mm-hmm. so there's clickbait which is now and then cl- don't click away bait yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh which was you know the past like because you want people to watch your commercials mm-hmm. you don't want them to go oh god it just it's, you know a, another hemorrhoid cream commercial and, and turn this off that's why for a lot of the medications that you know or for like you know weird old people diseases or other um you know like say like you know lifetime sexual diseases or other stuff like that they don't tell you what they're for they just show you a scene of happy people doing things and, <laughs> right you know oh you know it'll give you back your life and testimonials and i'm like i don't even know what you're selling me like is this because like i got a bum toenail or is this because i have weird things that show up on my butt like i don't know <laughs> like is this for old people is this for young people it's like no. Very, very I don't clever. Know. So they're making salient things that make us feel comfortable. Green grass, blue sky, happy people, picnics, yeah. dogs. Uh, usually walking like in a smooth, slow gait, slightly slowed down. So it yeah, just seems very like you're pleasant on music air, in yeah. the back. A very pleasant voice. And you don't even know what they're selling you, but you're going to ask your doctor about Rimbalta or whatever. The, yeah, you know, yeah. like Ask your doctor about Rimbalta. Yeah. Well, no, don't. No medical advice. I don't know Please if that's don't. even a real thing. I just I, I see too many of them. But then... Ask your doctor about relevant. But you notice, yeah, right, um, Doctor Verveke, <laughs> Doctor Verveke, uh, <laughs> um, Doctor V's. But stees. like one thing you'll notice though is when they're going over all the side effects, they have a guy that speaks really fast and really fast, and everything's really neutral, and 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 no word stands out any more than any other word. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, this pretty female voice comes at the end, and and she's yeah, the one that's like, like, ask your doctor, yeah. ask your doctor about yeah, right. yeah. yeah, it's it's crazy. 
It got it down to an art. Legalized lying. Well, you know. Shouldn't be able to lie to sell things, but it is fine manipulation that, that they are utilizing. Yeah, but you, you can't make piece. a law against it because where does the lie come in when you say, when you say like, oh, you know, try um lion's breast uh, excuse me <laughs> yes lion lion's breast, lion's breast li- li- yes lion's breast real cow milk yeah uh, or something like that. it's better than all the rest obviously you can't prove that it's better than all the rest but it's not a lie it's just you talking yourself up you know could be some people think it's better than all the rest and that's where you know your um, yeah they can make opinion claims they can't make actual yeah. their you know unverifiable scientific claims but they, they can't make opinion you claims. mean you mean those those like fish oil pills and weird pills that make me pee funny things don't actually make me more vigorous as a man and more attractive to women i don't think that's what they're for no no well damn fish oil should be for the brain anyway right omega uh, instead, six nines. you know frankly instead of uh instead of using it and eating it as a pill like just put a put a tiny bit in your food it's actually quite ineffective, and fish oil doesn't taste like super no, fishy. No, you use that to cook and yeah, yeah. As long as you don't get it too hot, because you don't want to break it down. But you know, like it's an used additive, lots of recipes. An additive to a miso soup or uh, something else like that. You can put some fish oil in there, or you can get fish. Get your omega threes, kids. Yeah, we need them. We actually don't eat as many nuts and fish mm-hmm. as we previously did. No, um, I that's hunter and gatherers, but that's what we did for the majority of our lives on this planet. Yeah, and that's what the, our bodies are suited. To. I got the Bragg's nutritional yeast as well as the Bragg's liquid amino. Oh, man. So that's uh, good know, stuff. So most of the things I cook have a little bit oh, in yeah, there yeah. because I don't get it in low a lot sodium, of the food I eat. but super salty and flavorful tasting. Mm-hmm. The Bragg's aminos, yeah, that, that's good for you. Yeah, and then the the nutritional Brain yeast for aminos. all the other crazy stuff that you like you need that you get in trace in your vegetables and all mm-hmm. other kinds of stuff. But once you process them or they've been stored for too long under you know whatever conditions they lose their nutritional levels as things break down you know oh most of our fruits and vegetables nowadays have a markedly less nutritional value than they did well and we've bre- even we've, 200 we've years bred ago them to be beautiful not nutritious also we have robbed the soil of mm-hmm. most of its nutrients yeah. so the top layers of soil are pretty void of nutrients so the fruits and vegetables are sadly coming out less and less nutritionally um rich and so as much as you guys can get food from your local farmers where people are growing it in land that they actually really try and care for not yeah. from the major agribusiness companies that grow most of our corn and soy and wheat because that soil is very very depleted and just like your food you should get you should get your knowledge and your wisdom from from local smaller sources i like this and other things instead of the huge thinking businesses universities <clears throat> legacy corporations corporations corporate television um you know because it's like remember the day where you thought you're you know like kind of knowledgeable about something because you've seen a few documentaries on it and when you go back and watch like how documentaries like unless no don't depends get me wrong. on the documentary. there's some really good documentaries yeah. but like you know the history channel documentaries or just from watching cnn like news say you're watching yeah, the news and you're, like, and oh, you're yeah, getting all I your information so and then and... when you actually look into it you're just like oh wait and then you look they back at it. You gave like, me a partisan, there's nothing in one-sided there. story and a well, narrative well, that actually good. was very misleading. And it tasted yeah. like meat, right? So yeah, I it was reported it. with great professionalism and attractive-looking people. And well, yeah, because the they production must values know what really doing, high. They must be the experts. They, their, their name's been around for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it's what it is. Be independent, family and friends. 
think for yourselves, challenge your own beliefs, and consider alternative viewpoints. Look at as many different angles as you can on any subject if you're really trying to actually get to the bottom of it. We're so quick to rush to opinions these days, and uh, it's very easy for us to be polarized in times like these. It's, we all know well we're experiencing I have it. a general rule, now that we're going back to rules last episode, um, the stronger... The stronger the emotion or the, uh, what's the word for it, the, the, to compel you, the, the more it compels you, the more emotion that any one thing gives you, the longer you should wait about responding to it or talking about it on Good the advice. internet. You know, because it's like we tend we tend to do the reverse where it's like, oh man, that hit me, now I'm pissed, mm-hmm. immediately go out and then the yeah. story comes out and you're wrong. It's like, okay. And social media is particularly tuned yeah. to cause that reaction in you. And it's it's really good to sit and meditate or contemplate for a while. It's ho- horrible to make mm-hmm. decisions when you're upset or angry. They're <laughs> and, often rash and they're not well thought and out. it doesn't mean you can't ha- immediately have those emotions and have no. those emotions. But you got like the more emotion you have, the longer you should sit with it before you try to communicate it. Yeah. And if you want to write something out to somebody and you're in that heightened place of emotion, well, get it out of your system. Write it yeah. down, but don't send it. Just write it down so you have the thought out there. And then look at it again the next morning and yeah. see if you still and, and don't, want... Don't to put, say it just that way, or maybe yeah. by then you're probably going to want to rephrase some things. You're going to be a little more yeah. And don't put it open in the, to don't put it in the text body either because you might accidentally hit send. And yes. Then, yeah. So yes. write it down. Done that. Yeah. <laughs> Beware of that. Yeah. Write write it out and uh, text at text program on the side or on a piece of paper actually, and think through it. Yeah. Very helpful. Well, we love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Meaning Making 101 here on Actual Eye Live. I've been Chris. I've been DJ. And make sure you guys hit the like and the subscribe if you're enjoying the show. Share with your friends and family. We also have this show playing on very different, many different podcast networks. So if you are on Spotify or Apple or Stitcher, wherever you're at, look up Actual Eye. Hit those five stars and give us a like or subscribe there as well. And absolutely do share some likes and subscribes with Mr. John Verveke and friends. And uh, I think that's about it for this evening. We will see you guys next Wednesday, 8 p.m. EST. Love y'all.